Thanks for inviting Mission City Church to join you wherever you are today. We've got a great message for you, so let's go ahead and get started. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 6, is where we're going to be today uh, in our series called Relentless, uh, talking about uh, this spiritual battle that all of us face. Every day we are in a spiritual battle. And what Paul is doing here, Paul is an apostle. He's, he's one of the followers of Christ. And he is warning us that if we uh, desire to live for Christ, if we start to live for Christ, that we are going to face battles, that there is going to be uh, spiritual oppression that comes against us. And it's not just the world is crazy, but, but there's a real spiritual force behind the things that we face. So let me ask you a question. Uh, how many of you breathed this week? Raise your hand. Okay. For those of you that didn't raise your hand, that's impressive. It really is. How many of you faced a spiritual battle this week? So here's what I want you to see. The exact same number of hands that raised when I said, how many of you breathed this week should have raised their hand when I said, how many of you were in a spiritual battle this week? And one of the things that I want us to understand as we think about this and look at this passage and talk about spiritual battles, these aren't just these big things that come at us, you know, lust or uh, covetousness or these sins and temptations. You're like, well, I didn't really face any of those last week. It's just life. I mean, if you're frustrated with your spouse this week, I want to ask you to raise your hand on that one. <laughs> or your kids. Like those are all spiritual battles. Last week we talked about the shield of faith. It talked about the, the flaming darts. And as I was just thinking and praying through that, how the enemy kind of comes at us, there's, there's darts and there's arrows and there's spears. The spear is like the kill blow, right? The arrows can, can wound, can mortally wound, but the darts, they just kind of nick you. And those little things of life are just those darts just kind of coming at us, but there's a cumulative effect to them. So we're all facing a spiritual battle. And Paul says, listen, you, you aren't going about this alone. You aren't living life alone. Matter of fact, God is warning you that these things are coming and he has equipped you with spiritual armor. And that armor is Jesus Christ, that we don't live the Christian life on our own. What do we do? We surrender and allow Christ to live the Christian life through us. And so Paul is in prison, he's writing this letter, and that's what Ephesians is, it's in a letter to a church in Ephesus, and, and he's in prison, he's probably in shackles, he's writing this letter, and he looks around him, and he sees these soldiers, and there's this idea for this metaphor of what this looks like, and, and he explains it to us, we just kind of walk through this, the belt of truth, that was foundational, that was the very first thing, why is that? Because we need to understand that there is a standard of truth. It's not my opinion or your opinion or what I feel or what you feel. It is a standard of truth that is absolute. The world does not want to have an absolute standard of truth. Why? Because then there's right and wrong. Then I have to feel some kind of con conviction or sorrow for the things that I do. If there's no standard of absolute truth, I can do and live any way I want without any consequences. But that's not reality. So he says, we have to put on the belt of truth. He says, we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness, not righteousness that comes from our, ourselves. It's righteousness that comes from Christ. We put on his righteousness. And, and he goes on and he talks about the shoes of peace. 
the shoes of peace that we put on, that we can have the, the peace of God, that before we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we, we are actually an adversary of God. Did you know that? Those apart from Jesus Christ are actually adversaries of God, and there's nothing that we can do to fix that. So what did God do? He made a way. We're going to talk about that today. So that in Christ Jesus, we could have peace with God, but also to be able to live in the peace that passes all understanding, right? The, the peace that when life is crazy and things are happening all around us, like it seems overwhelming that we can actually have a peace. And then I already talked about the shield of faith last week, transferring trust from self to Christ, right? Extinguishing the fiery darts of the enemy. And this week, we're going to look at the final piece of what I call the defensive armor, which is the helmet of salvation. So if you have your Bibles or your device, whatever you use to read God's word, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter six. We're going to pick up in verse 10. It says, finally be strong. Now, the world wants you to stop right there. The world tells you you need to be strong, but who do you need to be strong in? Yourself. You need to look within to find the strength. Look within. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and you can do this, right? You just need to believe in yourself. And the world wants to stop right there, but that's not where Paul stops. He says, finally, be strong in who? In the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And that's the goal. That's why we're talking about this. This is why Paul gave this to us, that we can withstand, that when it's all said and done, that we're able to stand because we stood in the Lord. He says, stand therefore, fasten the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And verse 17, the first part, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, it's interesting, as you look at this whole passage, the shortest description is the helmet of salvation. There's nothing that follows that, like take on the helmet of salvation so you can do this or so you can accomplish this. It just says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, when we think about a helmet, we think about this Roman soldier, right? It's kind of obvious the significance of a helmet, the Roman soldiers had, had helmets that were, were made of metal. They'd go over your head. They'd protect your ears. They'd kind of go over the back of your neck to protect the back of your neck. Some of them had the little slit on the front to protect the eyes as well. But the significance is that of the helmet is a blow to the head is fatal. Right? If you think back, if you've seen that movie, The Avengers of Infinity War, how many of you have seen that? That's about the same amount of hands that said they breathe this week. That's good. All right, think about in that movie, what's happening? You have Thanos. Thanos, he believes, is merciful and that he wants to wipe out half of all living creation and the Avengers are fighting against him and he's collecting these infinity stones and he finally has them all and literally with a snap of his fingers, he can wipe out half of creation. And so the Avengers are fighting against him and it comes to the climatic point of the movie. Thanos has all of the stones He's just easily wiped out all the Avengers, 
and flying through the air with lightning and thunder comes Thor, right? And he has his, he has his axe and he throws it. And what does it do? It hits Thanos right in the chest, like a fatal blow. And Thanos drops to his knees and Thor comes down there and he's just this, you know, really, really hyper moment where he's just like, you know, I told you that you were going to die for something else that he did. And, and Thor just kind of, I mean, Thanos just kind of mumbles. And Thor's like, what did you say? And what's the famous line? You should have aimed for the head. And he snaps his fingers and half of living creatures are wiped out. Why did he say you should have gone for the head? That's the fatal blow. That would have ended it all easily. The chest, yeah, that's bad. I'm probably gonna die, but not right now. The head, it's over. So I think as Paul writes this and he says, take the helmet of salvation, and there's really no other explanation. He's like, it's obvious the significance of the helmet. To go into battle, I can have my, my, my shield, I can have my breastplate, I can have my belt on, I can even have my sword. But if I don't have on my helmet, it doesn't take a whole lot to kill me. So as we think about this, what is the helmet's purpose? And I'm going to give you a definition. It's long. You have to write it down because we're going to explain it. The purpose of the helmet, it's a gospel reminder of the hope for God's people that points to God's promise of securing our salvation. So as we think about that idea, the helmet of salvation, what is salvation? Well, let me tell you what it's, it's not. It's not anything that you do by yourself. It's not a metaphor for you taking the helmet and putting on salvation, so now I'm saved because I did this thing. That's not what it is. The helmet of salvation that Paul is talking about here is a reminder that our salvation has been made secure in Christ. Paul talks earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for we're saved by grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor, right? Getting something you don't deserve. Someone else gives it to you. We're saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. If you're ever having a conversation with anyone about salvation and you ask them, what does it take to go to heaven? What does it take to be saved? If they talk about stuff that they do, well, I go to church and I do the sacraments and I confess and I did these things, take them to this verse. It's not anything you do. It's a free gift of God so that no one can boast. I've heard the illustration about salvation before that that salvation is like a life raft. That you're drowning in the ocean and God sends the life raft, Jesus, to save you. How many have heard that illustration before? It's not a good illustration. You're not drowning. You're already dead. He doesn't send a life raft to rescue you before you die. In sin, you're already dead. God sent Jesus to bring you back to life. That's what happened in salvation. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation is God sending his son because he loves you so much. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and God made you alive in Christ Jesus. So putting on the helmet isn't doing something yourself to be saved. It's what he's done for you. So what is salvation? We have to back up. Again, the Bible is one book. Don't ever lose sight of the fact the Bible is one book. Genesis to Revelation. 
And, and as you look at scripture, there's big overarching themes. Salvation, redemption, it's a meta narrative of scripture. We, we see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, this picture of God as divine warrior. All throughout scripture we see this. Old Testament references. Paul's not just looking at Roman soldiers here. He's a good Jewish person and he's looking back to the Old Testament. He's thinking about Isaiah chapter 59 where we see this divine warrior and his purpose is to rescue his people. So as you think about this divine warrior, there's kind of two parts to salvation we need to understand about God. Number one, it's a rescue. God coming to rescue his people. Think back to the story of Exodus. That story permeates all the Old Testament, really the New Testament as well. God delivering his people from what? Slavery, remember? They were in Egypt, they, they, they were slaves, they were crying out to God, and God rescues his people. Noah, what did he rescue Noah from? The flood, right? You, you have Daniel from the lion's den, David from the giant and his army from impending doom. You have Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego from the fiery furnace, Jonah from the belly of a well, Rahab from the destruction of Jericho, Esther and the Jewish nation from an evil plot. Then you have God coming to earth, taking on the form of man in Jesus, healing the sick, making the blind see, the lame to walk. Remember, he rescued Lazarus from the clutch of death. God saves his people constantly coming to our rescue. All throughout scripture we see this. But the second part of salvation is this triumph over the enemy. Again, repeated throughout the Bible. Exodus chapter 15, verse three, Moses celebrates Israel's deliverance from the army of the Egyptians. He says, Yahweh is a warrior. Psalm 68, Isaiah 19, Daniel chapter 7, Yahweh is riding his chariot on the clouds. The book of Numbers, you see this prevailing picture of God's army on the march to take the promised land. Deuteronomy, the Ark of the Covenant is seen as God's portable throne with the presence of the warrior king and camps around his people. What? As they uh, prepare for battle. Joshua. God gives him victory over Jericho. Judges and kings, you see literally a heavenly army fighting on behalf of God's people. So you see this, this idea of triumphing over the enemy. And then you cross over in the New Testament. Jesus defeated, he triumphs over sin, law, death itself. Colossians chapter two and verse 15, Paul writes that Jesus Disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And then we know, we just walked through the book of Revelation. In the end, what? God triumphs again at the end of the age when he returns. And so you see salvation as a rescue and triumph over his enemies. So when we think about salvation, just kind of a definition for our head to understand what we're talking about Salvation is God rescuing his people and reigning triumphant over the enemy. So it begs the question, why do we need to be rescued? Or to put it differently, what do we need to be saved from? One of the, the great preacher theologians uh, of the 20th century uh, was a man named R.C. Sproul. 
uh, one of the most influential Christian leaders, again, of the 20th century. And he would go around to a lot of college campuses and basically lecture on college campuses. And one day he's on this particular campus. And uh, before he's to lecture, he's just walking around, taking in the beauty of the buildings and the campus. And, and a zealot young college student who's excited about his faith runs up to R.C. Sproul and he asks the question, Sir, do you know if you're saved? I want you to be saved. Doesn't know who R.C. Sproul is. And R.C. Sproul just kind of pondered for a moment. And he said, son, saved from what? And he said the college kid just kind of fumbled like, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of got it out of eventually. But the key to this, this, this question, saved from what? Until this essential question can be answered... We're not going to be able to make sense of the sacrifice of Christ and explain it to others. We have to know ourselves, what are we saved from? We are saved from our sins. We are saved from destruction, not just death on this earth, eternal death and separation from God. Just like I said, you're not drowning, you're already dead. You, you have to come to a place in your life where you understand, I'm dead and I need to be saved. That, that's what it means. When someone asks you, are you a Christian? Are you saved? Are you born again? Do you believe? Those are all our little churchy words that we use to, to ask the same question. Have you been saved from what? From my sin, from myself, by Jesus Christ. He's the only answer, the way, the truth, and the life. That's what we're saved from. We can't save ourselves. It's something that, that God does through Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. All we do is accept the free gift that God gives us through faith. Now, when I think about church, I think about people that, that go to church. I think there's probably a lot of people here this morning a lot of people in churches all over our city, all over our nation, all over the world who believe that Christ died for them. And they think that salvation is just fire insurance. I'm saved. What does being saved mean? It means I don't go to hell. And that's kind of where it ends. Well, that's, that's partially true. Some people come to church because they're in search of a, of a blessing, they're looking for a, a motivational talk. Give me something. Give me five points or three points or two points to have a happy life, to have a better marriage. Like, I, I want to come to church and hear a motivational talk that'll make me feel better because life is difficult. And Paul's acknowledging life is difficult. That's why you have to put on the armor. It's not three steps or five points or any of those things. It's not a blessing that you're looking for when you come to church. It's coming here and realizing I actually have a need. I'm not looking for something. I have a need and Jesus is the only answer. This armor of God is the battle plan that Paul is giving us every morning when we wake up. How am I going to get through life? I'm going to put on the whole armor of God. It's not going to be in my strength. It's going to be in his strength. It's me dying to self. It's me surrendering and allowing Christ to live through me. So, so again, the question, do you know what you need to be saved from? And if you didn't, and if you don't, don't feel too bad. Peter didn't know. 
In the book of Mark, when, when Jesus takes the disciples to, to Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who's the world say I am? They give him some answers, and then Jesus goes, okay, guys, come in. Who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says the right answer. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, good job. God gave you that answer. But Peter didn't understand what he was saying. What he was saying is, you're going to be the Messiah that overthrows the Roman government, and you're going to be our new king on this earth. He didn't get it. He didn't, he didn't understand. But, but Jesus shows us in Luke chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, he says, salvation has come to this house, talking about Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If you ask the question, Jesus, why did you come? What was your mission statement while you were here on the earth? To seek and to save that which is lost. So when we think about salvation and the impact of salvation and putting on the helmet of salvation, it says that's something we do. We put it on to prepare for battle, not put it on to be saved. He's assuming and writing to people that are already saved. He's saying you put on this helmet of salvation. It's understanding salvation in the Bible has really three tenses. One is the past tense. We have been saved. If you have done what I just talked about, come to that place that you recognize you're a sinner in need of a savior, that you've embraced what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he died in your place and my place for our sins, then the Bible says that we can be saved, that we can be forgiven. That happened in the past. Could have been a week ago for you, could have been a month ago, could have been 10 years ago, could have been 50 years ago, but you know that you're saved. And, and this moment of salvation in the past is called justification. That means we've been declared righteous, declared right. So before Christ, I'm a sinner. I'm dead. I need saving. If I were to stand before God without Jesus Christ as my advocate, I would be guilty. I would be separated from God for all of eternity in a very real place called hell. But what happens? Because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, I take on his righteousness. When God looks at me, think about like a trial, I'm justified. I'm made right. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 says, since we've now been justified, how? By his blood, talking about Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? If while we were enemies, that's what we were before Christ, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And so there's the moment of salvation in our past, if you're saved, whenever that was. But then there's salvation in the present. We were saved, justified in the past. The present, we are being saved. And that's called sanctification. We talk a lot around here about transformation, transformed life. That's this process. Now, when you read in the Bible that we are being saved, that doesn't mean that you're not saved. That if I were to die today, I'm not sure where I'd go or what would happen to me. I have complete assurance if I walk out of here today, get in my car, pull out on the interstate, get T-boned by an 18-wheeler and die, I know exactly 100% where I'm going to spend eternity. I know that. That's not what this is saying. It says that we're being sanctified. We're becoming more like Christ, less of Matt and more of Jesus. So when you think about it again, salvation, it's not just being saved 
It's being transformed. In light of the fact that I was saved, justified, I'm now being transformed to be like Jesus. It doesn't end at salvation. We, we miss the best parts of salvation because we just think it's fire insurance. But he's saying, I want to sanctify you. I want to make you more like my son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Romans 6.22. Now that you've been set free from sin, you become slaves to God. What? God is my master now. Right? I, I willfully submit to him as my Lord over my life. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification. In the end, to eternal life. Right? God does not say, and let me be very clear with this, because a lot of people get hurt. They, they become Christians, they become followers of Christ, and then life is still difficult, and they get mad at God. At no point in no place in Scripture does it say that when you are saved, when you give your life to Christ, everything automatically gets better. Never says that. We still live in a fallen world. God doesn't remove you from the battle, but listen to what happens. He puts you on the winning side. I, I don't leave this place right away, but I'm now victorious. I'm on the winning side. So we were saved, justified. We're being saved, present, sanctified. And then there's a future salvation. We will be saved. It's called glorification. That's when we get to heaven and, and these bodies that we have now that are, that are part of this fallen world. And I, I've told you, like, at my age, things just hurt. I told Becky the other day, I said, I need to go to the doctor because about every two years, I need the doctor to tell me I'm not dying because I feel like I am, right? Something new hurts and I'm like, that's got to be a heart attack. I know I'm having a heart attack. Anybody else like that? You get that that way? Yeah, when you start waking up, and you have injuries, and you have no explanation except for sleep. Anybody else? Good, good, good. Right? This body, thank goodness, this body, I'm going to get a, a new heavenly body. And it's not corrupted, and it's not fallen, and it's not falling apart, and I promise you I'm going to be six foot five. It's, it's going to be great. The future, we will be saved. This glorification... Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. God, right, is doing the calling, predestined. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we do have the future to look forward to. This is not our home. Part of the problem is we think about when I was saved, the past, I get to go to heaven. And we think about the future when I get to heaven but everything in the middle just stinks. But that's not what Jesus said. What did he say? I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Doesn't mean nothing's ever going to be bad in your life. Or you're not going to have problems or trials. He guaranteed we were going to have that. But he said, I'm going to make you more like my son every day. And you're going to get a little bit more of a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like as you're sanctified. And ultimately, whether it's tomorrow or 50 years from now, you're going to get to heaven and you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven and you're going to be a brand new, you're going to have a brand new body 
And you're going to be able to, to, to worship and, and to work and to live and no more sickness and no more tears and no more heartache and no more disease, no more division. Just being there in the presence of God. So, so understanding the tenses, past, present, future, salvation is so important. That is the Christian life. We've been saved by the cross of Christ. We have a future hope that we belong to him forever. And our past is solidified because of our future, which is secure. And our present is great, knowing that 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we understand what we're saved from and what we're saved to. And that helps us to live right now. That's why Paul says, don't need a lot of explanation. Just put on the helmet of salvation. Get ready for battle. So, so what does that mean? What does the, the helmet protect? Well, it, it goes over our heads. So what do you think? If you're guessing this metaphor, what does it protect? Our minds. Where, where does Satan come after us? Because, again, he's writing to people who are saved. So he's not saying put on the helmet of salvation, be saved. He's assuming the people reading this are saved. He's saying, listen, when you're going into battle, what, what is Satan going to do? He's going to come after your mind. He, he's going to lie to you. He, he's going to try to, you know, get you down rabbit holes and you're focused on the wrong things. Sometimes he gets us to focus on good things so we miss the best things. He, he's coming after our mind. So we put on the helmet of salvation. This battle in life, it protects from doubt. Coming to that place where I'm like, I don't know if I'm really saved. Here's the deal. This is what God's word says to us about salvation. If you've ever doubted your salvation, number one, you're not alone. Number two, that's not abnormal. But God's word says that his spirit, the Holy Spirit, which seals our salvation, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're a child of God. What does that mean? When I come to that moment of doubt and I cry out to God, God, am I really your child? God's spirit says yes. I've sealed you. That's the great thing about salvation. When you're truly in Christ, you can never not be in Christ. But Satan wants to cause us to doubt. He wants to mess with our minds. So the helmet of salvation protects from doubt, security. I know who I am and whose I am. But it also protects from apathy. It protects from apathy. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book entitled Screwtape Letters. And in this book... He's writing from, from Satan's perspective, kind of unique to think about it that way. And, and as this book goes, there's, there's two main characters. There's Screwtape, and he's, he's kind of uh, like the experienced demon, the teacher. And then there's Wormwood, and he's like the demon in training. And so basically, Screwtape is, is talking to Wormwood about how he can be effective as a demon, separating what he calls the patient from the Lord. And Screwtape advises Wormwood to make the patient apathetic to his newfound Christianity. And this is what he writes. He says, if the patient, us, becomes apathetic, he'll be on his way towards hell. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. Gradually, the patient will be distracted from his faith and become numb to the touch of God. Over time, less interesting things will be required to fill the time that the patient would otherwise have spent with God. Anything would be sufficient to attract his wandering attention, and you will eventually be successful in separating the patient from God. 
You notice the, the gradual effect of apathy? Like it doesn't just hit like that. Just a little bit, a little bit at a time. Just a little bit at a time. Just a little bit of time. You know what? I don't need to spend time in God's Word this week. I'm busy. Or maybe just today. It's not even a week. Just tomorrow. I don't need to spend that time with God. Oh, you know what? Church, I mean, it's a beautiful day. The weather, it's nice. It's 50 degrees in the morning. Like, we'll make it up somewhere. And so what just happens? We just begin to become a little bit more apathetic. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've seen that. People just kind of slowly, not all at once, slowly fall away from God. Putting on the helmet protects the mind from, from apathy. So, so what does the helmet produce? Right? Just kind of bringing it home. Security. Right? We, we know whose we are. You, you think about uh, when you were growing up, if you're my age, we didn't have to wear seatbelts when we were a kid. Remember that? And we would have like station wagons. Those were like SUVs, but lower to the ground. And we would go on trips and you would sleep in the floorboard. You'd sleep in the back of the station wagon. If you didn't have a station wagon, we'd sleep up like behind the back seats. Remember between the windshield, nobody cared. You didn't get pulled over. Nobody thought it was dangerous. If you wrecked, you just died. It was quick. Uh, (laughs) But we would do this and we would go on these trips. And I remember as a kid, Going on these trips, and we drove everywhere. We didn't have the money to fly, and, and flying wasn't like it is now. And so we would drive everywhere. And a lot of times we would drive at night. There was always in my life, I remember this, a security knowing that my dad was driving. Now, I have no idea. When I'm four, five, six years old, I don't know if my dad's a good driver or not. But he's my dad, and he's my father. And he's driving, and I'm his child, and there's just a security. Or, or when, you, when you come home, maybe you go off to college and you're doing your thing, but there's just something about when you come home, home is home. Maybe you don't want to live there the rest of your life, but it's just something about coming home and the security, mom and dad and family. That's what, what the helmet does. It, it helps us keep our mind on Christ, that security in who we are, that, that assurance that we have of, of knowing who I am. I'm a child of God. I've been a, adopted to his family. I am loved. I am cherished. God is for me. He's not against me. And then we have an eternal hope. Not, not a hopeful hope. Not like, I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, which never happens. But eternal hope, an assured hope. This is what the helmet really is. It's the helmet of hope. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Right? Again, hope is not a process. Salvation is not a process. We put our faith in a person, in Jesus Christ. We have this living hope. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And I'll end with this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Understanding salvation, putting on the helmet of salvation, knowing our identity, who we are, having security and living in the assured hope of who we are in Christ Jesus, that we are saved, that we've been justified, that we're being sanctified, and that one day we're going to be glorified. 
and we're going to live with him for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word and this truth. We thank you for salvation. God, that it's a gift from you, but it's, it's a gift that we have to receive. So, Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone in this room that has not received the gift of salvation, forgiveness, this assured hope that today might be the day of salvation, that right now your Holy Spirit is moving in their hearts and drawing them and convicting them. God, for for others of us here this morning, we know that we're saved, but maybe our salvation has just been fire insurance. Maybe we've had the wrong motivation about what this Christian life is about. God, this morning, help us to put on the helmet of salvation, to understand that we've been saved, that because of that, we're being saved. You're transforming our hearts today and that one day, God, we get to be glorified, spend eternity with you, and and that future hope impacts how we live today. God, give us an eternal perspective. Help us to put on the whole armor, to stand against the schemes of the evil one. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. This this armor that we're to put on is, is Jesus Christ. We put on Christ. We thank you that he willingly went to the cross that he died in our place for our sins, that he was buried and rose again, defeating death, proving that he was God, dying so that we could have life. We thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. At Mission City Church, we love people and love how the good news of Jesus transforms lives and we want to see it more every day. Stop by missioncity.church to check out what we are up to that you can be a part of. It is also where you can share a gift to support the ministries of Mission City in San Antonio. Be blessed. Till next time.